Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing well. I missed you last week. I went solo. Uh, yeah, but... it was a busy week. Yeah, yeah, and and we we got a we got our friend of vets campaign launched. A great event to start mm-hmm. it off. Uh, if you are a Jefferson County voter, uh, ask Jasmine about a vet, uh, or ask me. I'm helping too. So do that. But yeah, uh, we are back in the swing of things today. No guests today. We had to have a little bit of a reschedule because as we're recording, the uh, Kentucky House is still in session. So our scheduled guest had to be rescheduled. So we'll be back with uh, with our mystery guest later, sometime <laughs> in the near future. Uh, but we're going to talk about other things today. We have House Bill 8. Uh, it is a new tax structure for Kentucky that's being proposed by Republicans. I'm going to talk about that. Jasmine is going to go over a raft of new bills that have come up, including uh, the new bill about school choice that was revealed yesterday on March the 1st, as well as the sports betting and gambling bills that Representative Adam Koenig has put together, something that he's been doing over the past couple of years, and a constitutional amendment about bail, um, which has been in the works for a while. I think we've kind of hinted at it, but Jasmine has the the bill text. Uh, It actually came out. The deadline for filing new bills is now passed. There were like 750-plus bills in the House this year, though. Way more bills than other long sessions. Yeah, there were a ton of bills. Yeah, there were a lot of bills. So we'll see what they actually have time to get to. Uh, Then, you know, I do have a COVID update and some quick hits. So without any further ado, let's talk about House Bill 8. Okay, Jasmine, Kentucky Republicans unveiled their budget, uh, you know, several weeks ago at this point. And we talked about it at the time. It was very dramatic because Governor Bashir was set to give his budget address and the Republicans dropped their budget before the budget address happened. But anyways, the Republican budget, which is, of course, the one that matters because they're the ones that control the legislature, they left $2 billion unallocated. And that was kind of egregious. But, at the, at, you know, one of the things that signaled was that they likely were going to change Kentucky's tax structure to give some of that money back to Kentuckians um, in, in terms of uh, not, not taxing them as much in the future. And that structure for changing the tax structure uh, was unveiled as House Bill 8 just last week. So House Bill 8 resets the tax structure in Kentucky to be more dependent on sales taxes and less dependent on income taxes, or at least that's the way it's framed. Really, it just makes Kentucky less dependent on income taxes and just has less money. <laughs> so uh, that that's that's one way to, I think, probably the better way to look at it. So we'll get into that. Um, the bill includes an immediate 1% cut to income taxes. Kentucky's current income tax for almost all taxpayers is 5%. I think if you make more than $5,000, you pay 5% in income taxes. And there's likely uh, some people whose declared income is less than $5,000, but that's a small number of people. Anyways, most people's taxes would then be cut to 4%. Then there are triggers in future years to reduce Kentucky's income tax revenue, um, right? So first to 3.5%, which would be another half percentage cut. And that is only if revenue exceeds $13.75 billion. And there, then there would are there are other kind of like a half percentage point reduction in the rate uh, if Kentucky's budget nets a revenue of a certain amount of money. And that's kind of the structure. As the revenue goes up, the taxes go down. And that's that's the idea there. The entire revenue or the entire income tax would go away if revenue exceeded $20.5 billion. And just as a reference, uh, the state budget office projects that state revenues would be $14 billion in 2023. So that would be that would that would trigger another cut to 3.5% in terms of our income taxes. Now, they don't get put back 
uh, if our if our budget reduces, goes below a certain amount. So you know, as years get very very flush, and there's more and more money in the revenue because of you know flush coffers because the economy is doing well that's one thing but then if the economy takes a downturn it does not that revenue does not get replaced by tax increases so one thing to keep in mind for sure so i said that the bill you know is trying to make us more dependent on our sales taxes but it isn't like that this bill makes big changes to the sales tax it does make some though it doesn't change the rate so we still have a six percent income or sales tax but it does broaden the base of the sales tax. Uh, there are several significant ex- exclu- exclusions from the sales tax, including things like taxis, which would include Uber and Lyft, advertising and marketing, graphic design, cosmetic surgery, a lot of other things. And these have been targeted for a long time in the Democratic um, bill, the Democratic bill to increase revenue. And, and these are kind of like luxury items. You know, we talk about the, the sales tax as a regressive tax, and that's true. But if you just change the sales tax on cosmetic surgery, that is not a regressive tax. The people who are, are purchasing cosmetic surgery are, are not necessarily the, the lower income uh, bracket of people. Now, you know, it's a luxury good. People don't need cosmetic surgery. People don't need necessarily need, uh, you know, uh, advertising, uh, the, the people who purchase advertising are, are like companies and stuff like that. Um, so, so it's not like it's falling on ind- individual small taxpayers. But the thing about raising taxes on luxury items like this is that there aren't a lot of revenue there. They, they, the uh, total amount of money spent on these things is not a huge amount, and 6% of that smaller amount is not large at all. If we really wanted to replace the revenue we would lose from the income tax by going after sales taxes, we would have to extend it to something that would be uh, a much, much broader uh, thing that people buy a lot of, something like groceries or medicine, which are things that other states tax that Kentucky does not. Um, But if you were to include the sales tax on those things, it really would help to replace the revenue that would be lost by an income tax. But it would be significantly more regressive. And that's not what what House Bill 8 does. So House Bill 8, the way that it's set up, immediate reduction in the income tax, scheduled reductions in the income tax moving forward, a broadening of the base of the sales tax by levying additional sales taxes or removing exclusions from the sales tax from luxury items, but does not broaden the base by adding groceries or medicine. So Jason Bailey of the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, he released an analysis of House Bill 8 after it was released that lays out the amount of revenue that would be removed from Kentucky's budget. He calls the cuts devastating. And he was quoted by the Courier journalist saying that the bill, quote, would doom Kentucky's schools and other public services, unquote. Bailey's analysis makes the case that cutting the income tax is a huge gift to people who are already wealthy, saying that just the first 1%, the top 1%, the people that Bernie Sanders is mad at, uh, and, you know, a lot of other people too, uh, it, it would, it, this tax cut, the 1% tax cut, would give $11,000 back to that group of taxpayers. Um, and, and that taxpayers, that group of people makes $1.4 million or more. And if you look at... Uh, the next group of people down, the people who make more than $300,000, it would give about $2,000 back to those folks. And then if you look at the other end of the income distribution, the people who make between thirty dollars and $50,000, they would get an average tax cut of $115. That's a lot less than $2,000 or $11,000. And for those people who make between $80,000 and $140,000, you know, kind of the upper middle class, 
um, you know, bordering on upper class, um, they would get $500. So even the people who, uh, you know, are pretty well off or very comfortable or making $100,000 a year, they're going to get $500, which, you know, that's nice. But the people at the top of this distribution get $11,000. So it's basically a giveaway to very, very wealthy people. The analysis doesn't get into the details about how the cuts would fall. And, you know, it, it's it's impossible to do that because once the revenue pie shrinks, those are really hard decisions that they're going to have a hard time coming up with. But it is very clear that if you cut income by this level, that it's going to be impossible to leave, you know, P through 12 education, higher education, Medicaid, criminal justice and other services untouched. You know, the bill is going to cut revenue and without revenue, you don't have the money to 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 pay for those things. Okay, so what are the Republicans saying about this bill? Rep- Representative Jason Petrie, who's the House Budget Chair, he said, quote, Kentuckians, those here and those who will move here, recognize that what remains in your pocket at the end of a day's work determines how you live. We have been very open about our goal to let people keep more of their hard-earned money rather than collecting it for the government to determine how to spend, unquote. So, it, I mean, to me, that means that the Republican line that cutting taxes uh, it, that, that this idea is is an ideological goal. Um, this is something that isn't like based in, okay, well, we're going to be able to do this or that. It is like we f- believe in our hearts that taxes are bad and that we should cut them. And, and that's why they're going forward with it. But, I mean, another piece of this is uh, that, you know, they, they clearly want people to move to Kentucky. That is something he, he said is that, you know, uh, those here and those who will move here. And it's often cited that Tennessee has seen significantly more growth in terms of population than Kentucky. And this tax structure, more dependent on a sales tax and less dependent on an income tax, is the way that t- Tennessee does things. And Republicans say that the reason people are moving to Tennessee is because of taxes. Now, Jasmine, I'm going to ask you a question I already know the answer to. And that's, do you know anybody that has moved from Kentucky to Tennessee? Yes. Yeah, I, I know you do, because we all do. And I know a lot of the same people that you do that have done, made that decision. And I will say, Jasmine, how many times when you talked about the to those people in the midst of their move, did they say, I am moving to Tennessee because of taxes? Zero. Zero. I think that that's about right for me, too. I don't think anybody moves. You know, Nashville's cool. There's a lot of cool stuff there in the pipeline from Lexington, graduating at UK, and then moving to Nashville is well established. There's a lot of folks that do that. There's a lot of good jobs there. Um, And it's just like there's more stuff to do there than there is uh, in in places in in Kentucky. Now, I will go to bat for Louisville versus Nashville any day of the week. And if anybody's (laughs) thinking about moving to Nashville or Louisville uh, and you need some convincing that you want to go to Louisville, call me. I will talk to you about it. But, uh, I mean, I'm not going to begrudge anybody that. And I think that that, you know, makes sense to a lot of people. And I don't think any of it has to do with taxes. Okay, so this bill is House Bill 8. That indicates that it's a really high priority for the, the Republicans It hasn't yet started moving, but it will be interesting to see how the GOP caucus reacts to the idea of House Bill 8. Some of the more socially conservative Republicans in the House do not want to see this kind of fiscal shift. They're actually a little bit more progressive um, than than even some of the more conservative Democrats on fiscal issues. And, And, you know, there's a small but moderate, a significant moderate urban wing of the GOP um, that often, you know, votes with Democrats on issues of fiscal um, responsibility. Uh, And and we'll see whether or not um, the Republicans have to react to that. I I don't know if it's going to be enough to derail this legislation, uh, but, but we will see. 
the GOP has had struggles with this type of legislation in the past. All right, Jasmine, all that being said, uh, you know, I guess, are you surprised that this has come out now? Um, what do you think about its prospects? And what do you think about the idea of shifting uh, Kentucky's tax structure in this way? I'm not surprised because Republicans have been talking about this since they took control in after the 2016 election. I did think it would it might look a little bit more like Tennessee where they have like the higher sales tax on more everyday products. I, I guess I'm a little surprised at what it looks like and I just don't really understand the analysis because it sounds like we're just losing money for no reason. <laughs> I think kind of the reason is Republicans would rather Kentucky spend less money on things like Medicaid, on things like criminal justice. They would rather spend less money on schools and tax people less. I mean, uh, well, okay, yes, I, I guess I understand that that's their priority, but. It, even though I don't, you know, subscribe to the same theory, at least in these states like Tennessee, and I think maybe Kansas does this too. I might, I might be wrong, but they get more revenue from sales tax. At least you're there's a justification because you're getting it back some other way. Yeah, even though it's regressive, and and here. It just sounds like we're taking away a lot of money. Um, yeah, I, at I, the state, I, I needs. see. I see what you're saying now, and it does. I, I do. I do think I have an answer for you, and that's that. In Tennessee, when they set up their tax structure, they haven't had an income tax in a really long time. I mean, my whole life, they've never had an income tax. They have always had a very broad-based sales tax. That's. I think it's either seven or eight percent. I think it's seven percent, but they do tax food and they do tax. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if they tax medicine or not, but they definitely tax food. And I think they tax it at a lower rate. I think it's like four percent sales tax on food. And if Kentucky were to actually make changes to the sales tax, right, that would actually hit people where they live. You know what I mean? Um, okay, we're getting rid of the income tax and we're going to increase the sales tax by taxing groceries. That is a significantly less popular bill immediately. Yeah. Uh, and so I think Republicans know that. They realize that. But they still want to cut income taxes. So they're just going to cut income taxes. They're just going to do it. <laughs> they're just going to do that and then just not replace the revenue. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of the thing. Like, we have, Kentucky has a more progressive tax structure than a lot of our peer states we have a more mm -hmm. progressive a tax structure than a place like tennessee a place like mississippi um you know mississippi's really rough because they have local sales taxes and they have state sales taxes i think birmingham the sales tax is like 10 percent on everything including groceries it's crazy um but yeah you know that's alabama that's not mississippi so better than alabama too but yeah, it, 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 it's pretty good right now, a little bit more democratic than other other states. And yeah, that's definitely something that they're trying to change. But we'll see if they're going to be able to do it. That's what it includes, though. So Jasmine, uh, tell us what we need to know about some new bills. All right. So the deadline to file new bills passed this week. So we have a few new things to talk about. The first one is a school choice bill. So this one is sponsored by Representative Chad McCoy. Um, he's the one who sponsored 
the one last year as well. This one is called, this one is HB9. It would give charter schools a permanent funding mechanism. So um, back when Republicans took control of the legislature, they passed a charter school bill, but they didn't pass a, an appropriation bill, basically. And so that's what this bill does. They would receive funding like traditional public schools um, based on like attendance um, from a mix of local and state tax dollars. The bill would also create a charter school commission and expand who can authorize a charter school. So with the previous bill, local school boards and mayors of Louisville and Lexington had the power to authorize charter schools. Under this bill, House Bill 9, public and private universities the Kentucky Board of Education and certain nonprofits could authorize schools along with that new commission that it would create. Um, And then if an application got denied, it could be appealed to the Kentucky Board of Education or that commission. So that is the change from the original charter school bill that we had and then giving it permanent funding. It also addresses an issue from last year's school choice bill. So if you'll remember, we talked a lot about this Um, at the time. It it barely passed at the end of the session. That bill created educational opportunity accounts, among other things, and it only allowed them to be used for private school tuition in larger counties. Um, And this is one of the parts that was struck down by Franklin Circuit Court and is at the Supreme Court of Kentucky now. And so House Bill 9 would expand that provision to cover all counties in the event that the Kentucky Supreme Court affirms the Franklin Circuit Court on that issue. So that's the school choice bill. They've had trouble with this in the past. They've been obviously, you know, the first year that the Republicans took over. They really worked hard to authorize charter schools. I think it took them like two years to do that. I think that wasn't until 2018 that they were managed to do that. And then they came back in 2019 and 2020. Uh, and, and you know, 2020 was obviously cut short, but they tried to fund charter schools in 2019 and 2020. Then they were finally able to get that, that HB9 last year passed. But it's been really hard for them. It's been mm-hmm. very difficult. Um, do you think that the changes that they've made, which I think include, like you mentioned, like removing the mayors of Louisville and Lexington as uh, people who are able to, you know, charter and create charter schools. And do you think that the changes to expanding the voucher sy- system to um, all counties, do you think that's going to be enough to get this to pass? And do you think that, you know, the, the house is, has a better appetite for this type of thing now? I don't know. Some of the Republicans that have voted no on some of these pieces of legislation have been Republicans that are not in Lexington and Louisville. Some of them aren't there anymore. I think we had like a pro-public education Republican in the House, Travis Brenda, and then he got beat. And, And so some of those people aren't there anymore. And so I don't know if they have the votes to do it, but... I mean, even just last year, that that bill with the educational opportunity accounts barely passed, and mm-hmm. I think it took that vote from Al Gentry. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. They ended up having... So, I don't know. I don't... 
Maybe not. Yeah. They ended up having enough votes to override the veto without Alvin Gentry, if I remember. Right, they yeah. did. They they got people to change their votes. Yeah. Um yeah. and didn't really have a problem doing that. But Yeah. I think they definitely have a, a narrow margin when it comes to charter schools. The next bill or well really a set of bills are about sports betting and gambling so representative adam koenig from northern kentucky announced a package of gambling bills this week so he has been the republican carrying the sports betting legislation the last few years um it did pass committee unanimously a couple years ago but then died in the house um this year there's an omnibus bill House Bill 610, that is like a comprehensive bill addressing several gambling issues, but then there it's also like four separate bills. He's hoping that that comprehensive one will pass. Um, but so here's what we have. The first one is sports betting. So it would legalize sports betting at horse racing tracks, the Kentucky Speedway, and on a phone app. The new version of the bill would allow the app to be downloaded from anywhere, not just at the racetrack. So I guess previous versions, you could only even download this app at one of the authorized locations. And so, I mean, this is still a really narrow sports betting bill. Um, And but this at least allows the app to be downloaded from somewhere else. Um, And. Now, I guess since the last time we've talked about this, I think there may be a few new states that have legalized it, but all surrounding states now have sports betting except Missouri, which barely touches us, so they're barely a surrounding state. Um, But all the others have it, and we're only one of 17 states that have not legalized it. Um, So it'd be great if we could do that. (laughs) A lot of revenue we're missing out by not having sports betting. And because it's over able to be done over the phone, there's a lot of people who are paying taxes in Tennessee or West Virginia or whatever um, just by having like pretending like they live there. So just saying. Yeah, I, I go to Indiana sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people do. <laughs> I I want to bet on Carl Anthony Towns winning the three point contest a couple weeks ago. Dang. I did not think he was going to win that. So congratulations. Yeah, he to had you. he had the highest odds. Best best score of all it. time. Yeah. 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 All right. So that's the sports betting bill. The next one is gray machines. So Killian Timoney is sponsoring a bill that would ban gray machines, which have popped up all over the state because of the lack of a clear prohibition in the law. These are basically slot machines. I don't. I don't really know what makes them different. <laughs> That's the thing. Nothing. They're I mean if a if a person if a police officer walked in there, they could like arrest somebody because they're basically slot machines. I you know, I I don't think anything makes them any different. And when I, I've been in places that have these things and I'm looking at them and I'm just like that is a slot machine. There's nothing yeah. that makes it any different. Yeah, and so there's a bill that would ban those. Um and the bill would also direct KSP, the Kentucky State Police, to create a task force to like go after these machines because they really they've like popped up in like restaurants and gas stations and stuff all over the state. They're kind of like a way for small businesses that have struggled during COVID. They've gotten 
some revenue from having these gray machines. Um, but I don't really see how these are any different from anything else, any other type of right. slot machine. Yeah, or gambling. I, I still can't figure it out. I mean, obviously there's a bill to ban them, so there must be something that makes them a little different, but I don't know what it is. Yeah. And I mean, there's a, there is apparently some kind of lack of clear ban on them in the law, but I just don't know the nuances of like what's different about this particular kind of machine that people have. Um, but this bill would, would ban those. The next one is taxation on betting. So it would change taxation on paramutual betting, but keep historical racing the same. Um, so paramutual betting would be taxed at 1.5%, um, which is the current rate on the historical horse racing wagering the tax rate on advanced wagering deposits. So like that's when you put money into like your twin spires account on for Churchill downs Um, that would be raised from its current rate while the rate for simulcast betting would be lowered. Um, It's still not, we're we're still not taxing this stuff at a very high rate. Though. Yeah, I mean we're we're taxing it at a very low rate, and it's kind of odd that they're like lowering taxes on gambling on some. I mean, just just raise it, just raise it, just increase it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, but uh, I like we talked about in the previous segment, uh, Republicans are allergic to revenue, so that is what it is. Um, and then lastly. The last bill is a problem gaming trust fund. So this is a bill um, for a fund that would seek to like create awareness and resources for gambling addiction. The funding for that would come from a really large settlement from a poker stars lawsuit um, that was like over $200 million. And so Adam Koenig hopes that all four of these things could pass in one omnibus bill. Um, I don't have high hopes for that because we tend to not really do things that way. (laughs) 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 Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they'll ban the gray machines. Um, Of all the bills, that seems like the one that's most (laughs) likely to pass. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, um, that's this year's sports betting update. Yeah. Uh, nice shout out for Jack Conway in his uh, poker yeah. star settlement. So, you know, didn't get to be governor, though. Oh, well. And then the last bill I wanted to talk about, there were a lot of new bills filed, but, you know, we we can't do this show forever. Um, so the last one is a constitutional amendment dealing with bail. And so this is House Bill 754 that tells you how many bills have been filed there's even more than that um this was this one is sponsored by jason nemus and so it would amend the constitution um i think we've talked a little bit about this with the bail issues that have come up with quintez brown's bail being posted by Louisville Community Bail Fund, and people were wondering why he was granted bail in the first place. And it's because our Constitution allows for all bail in all cases except capital cases, and even for capital offenses, um, they still can be entitled to it. And so um, this would change 
the Kentucky Constitution, and it would state, all prisoners shall be bailable by sufficient securities unless for capital offenses when the proof is evident or the presumption great, or, and this is the added language, or unless after a hearing a judge finds by clear and convincing evidence that there's a substantial risk that the person may flee or poses an imminent danger to himself or herself or to any persons or the community. Um, so because this is a constitutional amendment, that would have to be something that's on the ballot as well. And that, so basically what this would do is allow judges to hold detention hearings, to hold people without bail. To me, this bill, this amendment is bad because it seems to allow for a hearing in any case. And I can't remember if I said this on the show a few weeks ago, um, but my best example of this is in 2011, we passed a comprehensive criminal justice reform bill called House Bill 463. And that bill required bail credit for all people who are arrested and incarcerated, they get $100 in bail credit per day unless a judge finds that there's a risk that the person may flee or pose a danger. So kind of that same language that's in this constitutional amendment. And what happened is that no one gets bail credit because the judge finds danger or flight risk in every case. Um, so... It seems like with this constitutional amendment that a judge could hold a hearing for anything. Yeah, that is certainly the way it looks to me. And I think when you think about what you just brought up in terms of like, we have a bill that's supposed to be giving people bail credit and nobody's getting bail credit because of the way that judges are intervene. Or the fact that, you know, Quintez Brown uh, has significant mental issues, apparently, and, uh, you know, took a sh- took shots at uh, a mayoral candidate and was still granted bail. And a lot of people are upset about that. And we have this constitutional amendment um, to and we don't because we don't have the ability for, for judges to have remain like the entire bail system is basically just like totally broken. And that's something that we've been talking about for for years and years. Um, And it seems like that this this constitutional amendment doesn't seek to actually fix the bail system. It just is looking at like one case and making the bail system more like more punitive. And I kind of feel like, you know, if you ask me, do I believe in that judges should have the ability to like ha- hold hearings and not issue bail? Like m- maybe um, if the rest of the bail system worked like it was supposed to, like you could I could conceive of a bail system or a system where, um, you know, we're putting people in jail when crimes are committed uh, and, and people are w- awaiting trial. Um, that, you know, very, like the facts of the case are very clear and this person is very dangerous and, you know, they need to, uh, (laughs) they need to be, um, uh, you know, held, uh, in the jail. Like there, there's, there's a, there's a place for that potentially, but given all, I think the offense would need to be serious. Yeah, exactly. We, we can't just be having detention hearings and holding people on 
shoplifting yeah, <laughs> without ex- bail. Exactly. This, this, this solution to a problem is not sufficient. Um, it doesn't. It, it doesn't solve the problem of of the fact that the judges uh, don't have enough discretion. It gives them like far too much yeah. discretion. And I I do want to like I don't think that Jason Nemus wants people to be incarcerated pending trial on shopliftings. I but I think that the language of this amendment, while like not doing anything to actually reform the bail system, it just allows for too much abuse yeah. of it, I think. I, yeah, I mean, it, it's it, that that seems very clear to me. That, like, yeah, I know, I don't, I don't think that that's a situation that Jason Nemus envisions. But that's something that this that, that his constitutional amendment allows. Uh, and to to assume that it will never be used that way is naive because that's you know that's that that we have a lot of very punitive judges in this state. And right, I, like yeah. we we have a lot of punitive ones and we have a lot of reasonable ones, but sometimes, like with the bail credit, it's like one judge probably tells the other judges, "Oh, I never give bail credit. Yeah, I do this on those cases," and and so other judges start doing it too, and and then no one gets it, you know. And so, yeah. um, I think it leaves a lot of room to make the system worse than it is. Um, and when they when they were debating. House Bill 313, which is the bill that would restrict charitable charitable bail organizations. Pamela Stevenson said, we like to take bad facts and make law out of them. And I think that's what is happening here with this as well. Um, And so I think that this would be a bad constitutional amendment. Yeah. And and I mean, you know, this is something we're going to talk about 313 in just a second, but only very briefly. And, you know, there was a lot of testimony on that bill on both sides that was very emotional. And and I think that the testimony on both sides of that bill indicate that we have a broken bail system. Like, it is not working like it's supposed to. And, and you know, I don't – speaking for me personally, you know, I am not saying that the bail system doesn't have significant problems. What I'm saying is that the solutions that are being proposed in the legislature are only going to make it worse and re- really only address one side of the problem. And there are at least two sides of the of the problem and without addressing the other side of this problem you're only going to make our incarceration problem worse our jail problem worse and and that's not off topic that's part of this larger discussion uh, about jail about bail about how we do criminal justice in this state um and and really it it is a shame because we have a real problem and and the solutions that are being proposed are only going to make the larger problem worse Mm -hmm. (sighs) all right well Let's talk about COVID, uh, which is actually not a bad topic this week. So COVID cases are coming down very quickly in Kentucky. Our seven-day average is 1,815, and just a week ago, the seven-day average was over 3,000. Two weeks ago, the seven-day average was above 4,000. There's a significant east-west split in the case rates right now. Western Kentucky is mostly orange or yellow. There's a lot of counties that are already falling down below 10 cases per 100,000 population. But nearly all of them, with a few exceptions, are between 1 and 25 cases per 100,000. Almost all of eastern Kentucky, though, is still red, um, with some counties showing more than like 80 cases per 100,000. But cases are falling everywhere, and, and, and that that case rate in, in those eastern Kentucky counties is coming down quite a bit. So so it won't be very long, but that is the way that COVID is receding. It is receding in an easterly direction. 
Louisville, though, was red as of yesterday, but today we, we moved into the orange. Um, uh, you know, I think we're right at about 25 cases per 100,000. Um, but Louisville's cases fell dramatically this week. Um, you know, I, I was getting a little nervous because there was a big, big decline in the second half of January and like the first couple weeks of February. And then like for three weeks or so, the cases were steady. And then last week, they actually went up by quite a bit. And then this week, they just fell off a cliff. Uh, so I, I, I no longer needed to be nervous. Um, there were 7,000 cases in Louisville the week before last. And then last week, there were 1,700. So that is a substantial decrease. Uh, cases in Louisville are now lower than during most of the decline uh, in the Delta area. So like as Delta was going down, we're, we're like basically where we were in the middle of that decline. Uh, the story is mostly the same in Lexington. Saw a big decline, a steady stream of cases for a few weeks, and then a massive downturn in the last week. Fayette County now has a daily average of less than 200 cases, and that's for the first time since the new year began. So basically the same story in Lexington as in Louisville. The 14-day average for deaths has been declining for most of the second half of February, but it actually has started to tick up. Deaths, you know, they're very uneven in the seven-day average. The 14-day average I try to use because it's a little smoother. But there is just a lot of choppiness in the trend of deaths. Um, and, and that's really unfortunate to be able to say that. Um, but, you know, if we look at it over the very long term, um, basically since the start of Delta, we've been relatively stable at about 30 deaths per day. And before that, in, in last summer, we were significantly below that. So so we have, over a pretty long period of time, seen about an average of, of 30 deaths a day. Um, okay, vaccinations have slowed significantly. We are at 65.3% of our population that has at least one shot of the vaccine. And it has taken us, uh, you know, since January 22nd to increase that percentage by 1%. So on January 22nd, we were at 643 as of today, we are 65.3. So it is it is like pulling teeth. I mean, there were times before we were going up by like 1% a week or so. We are certainly not there. There are about 750 people getting newly vaccinated each day. Um, and we are up to about 24% boosted. You know, we're, we're pretty much at the end of who's going to get the vaccine. Hospitalizations are down to about 1,200 and still falling significantly. That's about 45% of the Omicron peaks. We are below half of the peak. ICU usage is at 222, and that's only slightly higher than the lowest point between Delta and Omicron. So we are almost already past the bottom of where the Delta trough was um, in terms of ICU utilization. So, you know, all the COVID metrics are trending in the right direction as of right now. And honestly, there's really not that many bad signs on the horizon. You know, I remember in the summertime uh, last year, you know, we were feeling good. COVID was looking pretty good. But but Delta had already started to hit India and had already started to hit the United Kingdom. And, and you know, we were slightly worried and increasingly worried until it got here that Delta was going to come to the United States. Delta started receding. We started feeling okay about it. But I, I'll still remember on uh, Thanksgiving Day, uh, we had Thanksgiving dinner with my family. And I came home and I looked over at Kelsey and I said, there's a new variant. It looks bad. And she said, you've ruined my holiday. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, even though cases had started coming down around Thanksgiving of last year, you know, uh, we knew that Omicron was on the horizon. Right now, 
everything's going in the right direction. And honestly, there aren't that many bad signs in terms of things that are out there that are coming to get us in terms of COVID right now. And it's honestly the most optimistic I've been about COVID in about nine months. But, you know, caution should still rule the day. Louisville just went out of the red zone today. Um, And, you know, the thing is, anything could still happen. (laughs) I feel good right now, but uh, but you know the what I don't know what letter we're on the Tau variant could be coming around the corner any time now. Um, but right now I am exhaling. You know uh, I'm probably just a couple weeks away from taking off my mask, um, and you know uh, at least in in, in most places uh, and, and not feeling too bad about it. So I don't know. Uh, feel okay about it right now. What about you, Jasmine? I think I am getting. I'm definitely comfortable not wearing my mask around people that I know are vaccinated and boosted and have taken all the precautions and everything. I'm comfortably like hanging out with friends without a mask. I do still wear a mask to work out in because I know I don't know the vaccine status of of people at the fitness studio that I go to. I know a lot of them have young children And so there are places and I'm still wearing it to the grocery places where I just don't know who I'm around or is where I still wear my mask and still plan to wear my mask. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about this before. You know, I I'm I'm, I started training for a half marathon and um, it was raining the day I was trying to start. And I went to the gym for the first time in like two years and wore my mask to run it's I, so hard. It is, it is. It is. You know, it's a good. It's a good training. I went outside and yeah. ran the next day, and I was like, "Wow, I'm super fast now." But uh, <laughs> yeah, it. Uh, it's tough. It's tough to to work out in those masks. But you know, good idea for now for sure. All right, let's do some quick hits and then get out of here. All right, so you know, bills that we've talked about that have passed their chamber. So HB three thirteen, the aforementioned charitable bail fund bill, it passed the House on a seventy six to nineteen vote. All the no votes were Democrats, all 19, but a few Democrats did vote for it. That was Charlie Miller, Patty Minter, Ashley Tackett Lafferty, and Angie Hatton. I believe that's not quite everybody outside of uh, Louisville, Lexington, and Northern Kentucky. No, it is. That's everybody outside of Louisville, Lexington, and Northern Kentucky, and then also Charlie Miller. I think the... There was like some emotional testimony from um, someone who lost a family member to somebody who'd been out on bail. If you've been watching the news, you probably saw about this. And I think Charlie Miller um, represents that family. So that's probably why that happened. Um, The bill was changed slightly. It's no longer a full ban. It caps bonds that charitable bail funds can pay at $5,000 and make some technical changes to ensure that both of the major bail funds are included into the bill. All right, Senate Bill 138, which is the CRT bill that didn't go as far as many others. Uh, Jasmine talked about this several weeks ago. It did pass the Senate on a party line, 28 to 8 vote. Alice Forgey-Kurt and Whitney Westerfield did not vote on it. And then just today, House Bill 3, the omnibus anti-abortion bill, passed on uh, a 77 to 20. It literally just passed, so I haven't seen a vote sheet. Um, I don't know who's on that and who the 20 votes were. I'm just going to assume that it was 20 of the Democrats. Um, they refused to take up Rachel Roberts' exception for uh, victims of rape or incest, which was something she wanted to insert into the bill. They said no. And, and also something happened in the middle of that debate that's probably something we should address, which is that Danny Bentley, who's a representative from Greenup County, Northeastern Kentucky, said some like incredibly strange and anti-Semitic remarks about uh, 
I don't even want to really want to get into it, but that has been happening a couple times in the past week, mm-hmm. where um, there was a different committee hearing where two state representatives, two Republicans, used a racial slur for for Jewish people, um, and yeah, that's not that's very bad. Um, that's very bad. Uh, you know, I don't know how to to deal with that. I don't know uh, what to do about it. I do know that there's a lot of um, a lot of people who are fighting against anti-Semitism who have had a really rough week in terms of realizing that there's some folks in the state legislature who are comfortable using terms like that and comfortable with saying, you know, some really strange stuff about Jewish folks. So um, that's pretty bad. Um, uh, hopefully that doesn't happen anymore. And hopefully um, we can insert some rules to prevent it from happening, at least in public, um, you know, if not in private in the future. The last quick hit, the Senate refused to confirm two of Andy Bashir's appointees. So first up, Marianne Butler, who is a Democrat who'd served several terms in Louisville's Metro Council. Um, she was supposed to be she was nominated for a seat on the Public Service Commission and the Senate denied her. And then Brian Eric McKay, Mackey, Brian Eric Mackey, he was desi- denied a seat on the Fish and Wildlife Commission. So Robert Stivers, who's president of the Senate, was clearly behind denying these appointments, but would only kind of make vague comments about, you know, conduct as his reason for denying them. Um, you know, David Yates, who's a state senator from the same area where Marion Butler served on the Metro Council. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, he said that denying these appointments was, quote, a jab at the governor. I think that's probably right. <laughs> but because of the rules of the Senate, um, questions aren't really... Uh, you know, needed before votes. So Robert Stivers was not required to give any justification. He just denied these two appointments and I guess threw up double middle fingers and cussed at the governor. He didn't actually do that, but that's what happened in in my head at least. So um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Did you hear anything about these uh, appointments or know anything about why they might've happened? It seems quite mysterious. I have no idea. (laughs) I don't, I don't know if this is just another, method for you know keeping the gov the governor from having the power to do anything um i honestly don't know what's going on with either of these yeah the kentucky democratic party actually had a pretty good video about like robert stivers whining about things that i thought was very effective and you know he's a very thin-skinned person it seems like and so this is petty but thin-skinned people do petty things um so that's probably what's going on here. All right, that's the show for this week. Uh, all right, Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month you can do that at patreon.com slash my old kentucky podcast and last but not least we are part of the demcast network all right everybody thank you for listening and we will see you next week <laughs>